Hello, this is Stephanie. And this is Brian. And this is Taylor. Welcome to the making and the remaking of A Codependent Mind. Thank you. It's good to be here. We're so excited to have you, in part because we ask people who are guests to just send us some notes beforehand, just so we can kind of get a sense of how the, the story is going to go. And the notes you sent us were so interesting and insightful yeah. and yeah. compelling. A whole bunch of new terms <laughs> to fold into what our understanding. A lot of opportunities for more research, I guess, more episodes. <laughs> oh, well, yeah. yeah, there you go. <laughs> Absolutely. That's a good point. So, but I guess we'll have you start the way that we've been having people start. And that's kind of in the beginning and, and wh what you see is, is your origin story. So, yeah, so I, I yeah, I kind of have sort of a classic, like, grew up middle class, very nice family. I don't know, did sports and went to a good school, all that kind of stuff. And so that was sort of the um, socioeconomic demographics. But the internal family structure was very chaotic. So it sort of like all kind of hinged around the nucleus of my mom and her alcoholism. And it's actually kind of interesting because I genuinely don't even really remember like a ton about my childhood up until like about middle school when she got sober. And even then sobriety was kind of always sort of a, a challenge. But what that really did was sort of mark this like intense uh, like there was just a, so much chaos <laughs> in mm -hmm. my home life. That is interesting. Why do you think that is? Is it possible that maybe it was so chaotic before middle school, before she got sober, that maybe you had to kind of just shut down altogether? And yeah, that's kind of been sort of my best guess. Is that I think difficult to remember things well when there's a lot of change constantly happening, right? I think kids kind of sort of glom onto structure when that doesn't sort of exist and it was kind of interesting actually because I sort of thought this was I thought this was like how everyone <laughs> remembered their childhood was like not remembering it um and then yeah then I found out that that was in fact not the case and then then I read yeah a book that you guys have mentioned quite a few times about the body keeps the score and how that like sometimes can actually be kind of maybe like a more like a red flag if you don't remember your childhood and it's like oh okay well so now I know that that's not normal but it's interesting because I've sort of, I don't know, I'm very conflicted with the path also of trying to like dig up memories because it's so unreliable. Yeah, for me too. I mean, it really just yeah, totally. trying to place your emotions and link all of that together is like reconstructing something that you kind of lost. Well, especially as you, you know, as you both kind of experienced when your emotional systems were overwhelmed at the time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, totally, totally. So I think probably, yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if. Brian, you and I have like a, just a really similar situation where it's like it was just so overwhelming that like kind of the only real option is like disassociation and like mm -hmm. not being present. Yeah, compartmentalization. You're, you're teaching yourself these avoidance techniques right from the start, basically. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. So it didn't get markedly better when she got sober. I think it did. I think it did. The other part too with my family structure was that so my mom also through this leaned very very heavily on. My oldest brother, so I have two older brothers, so the oldest brother sort of took care of the other brother and me. And then kind of around middle school was when he moved out, obviously, because he was going to college. And then, yeah, then we had sort of this crazy situation that I don't, I don't remember all the specific details, but something about how I think she ended up getting a DUI and maybe going to jail, but then also was like, I <laughs> tried to like run away or something yeah there was like a couple things that all happened sort of all at once and I sort of remember 
I think the DUI happened first. And then there was another instance where, yeah, she got very drunk and then ran away and then was calling my dad or my brother and telling them that she was somewhere and we had to call the police. And like, it was just like this huge, crazy mess. And so finally it was like something big enough happened that it was like kind of this ultimatum about <laughs> drinking. And so, so yeah, so things did. I would, it definitely things improved because I think just when you are a kid and when you're, you know, an adolescent or something like you just really don't have any concept of what alcohol is. So it's very, very scary to be around someone who's just constantly intoxicated or is intoxicated a lot. So I think just not like even just removing that piece. And this is very typical with a lot of um, family structures that are impacted by alcoholism. Like usually a lot of the bad behaviors and stuff can stay for a while. Um, but even just removing the, the sort of scary part of it can really be like just enough of a improvement that things can start to feel normal or better. And I'm sure probably there's also a certain element too of when you become an adolescent, you're kind of inherently getting more agency and control over your life anyway, too. So there could have also been things coinciding there. Did you, did you find yourself gaining agency? Uh, Cause I don't think I ever really did myself. Yeah, that's a really good question. I don't think so. I think I only ever really felt like I was just physically getting older. Uh-huh. <laughs> I didn't ever feel like I was particularly getting more control or independence or individuality. Individuality, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah totally. So yeah, so I would say like a lot of those those dynamics really impacted me and then I think the the biggest things that I would say impacted like the person that I ended up becoming through this was as the youngest kid I kind of played this major permanently happy role so it was just like this very sunny kid and like very happy go lucky and so I think a lot of that turned into this like I didn't realize it obviously until way later in life but how much it was me actually just like putting down any negative emotion inside me and just cramming it down and then Um, pretending I was happy all the time, which also turned into like these really codependent people pleasing, this intense fear of upsetting people. What would be the consequences when you were young of, of upsetting your mother? You know, the, you hear about the fight, flight, freeze or fawn method of response to, I guess, life or death situations. And it, it is interesting how much you just sort of naturally, especially like kids are just so smart, right? So they just sort of naturally (laughs) figure out the one that's most effective. And the fawn method, which is the only one that could get my mom to chill out again, just pretending that, you know, like, oh, whatever happened wasn't that big a deal or that you still loved her or it was so weird because a lot of times like there'd be things where like she would do something and you'd find like yourself apologizing to her almost. She would do something to you, like violate your boundary or mistreat you, but you would have to make her feel okay about having done that. Totally. Right. Yeah. That's like the perfect way to put it. Yeah. Like I would have to make her feel better for having behaved in a less than an (laughs) appropriate way. And and when you say had to, she was enlisting you to do that, right? I mean, she was making you feel as though you had to, right? It wasn't just. Exactly. Yeah. Like if you, if you froze or if you fought back or anything like that, things would only get bigger and bigger and even more like angry and ugly. And for me, I feel like it almost was just the quickest way to get out of the situation. Because I think that is like at, at its core, that's kind of what survival is trying to do, right? It's like not trying to resolve anything. It's just, <laughs> how do we get out of this? <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. And so then from there forward, any emotion coming from anyone that felt similar, you're doing the same thing. Right, exactly. So yeah, so then I had this massive fear of upsetting people. And then also this like really major inability to say no. And so yeah, so kind of going into that piece of it too with it's hard to even think of what could be specific examples. But it's funny because the dynamic is like still exists today. But um, my mom just really takes it personally when anyone for any reason says no to her. To her credit, it was much worse when we were growing up than it is now. But I'm not sure it's to her credit that she's better. It might be to your credit that she's better. (laughs) (laughs) That's also true. Yeah. (laughs) That's that's a good point. Your behavior's worked. You're slowly training her. (laughs) Yeah. She's been forced to adapt. Exactly. Um, (laughs) And also, yeah, it's like, it's different when you have little kids that can't, yeah, when you're seven years old, it's like, what are you going to do about this versus like when you're 30, it's like, okay, I can leave. So I had this half piece of like this massive fear of upsetting people and then this other half piece. If you say no to someone, you were like, personally rejecting them and you're not just saying no to the thing so a easy example would be asking me to come and hang out with her and like have coffee with her and if I'm in the middle of doing something and I say like oh no not right now or I can't or even I don't want to whatever you deal with pouting and cold shoulder and just all of these kind of like response behaviors to sort of signify what an inappropriate thing that was to do was to say no. So this is kind of classic boundary work, right? Yeah, yeah. Where your time is your time. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, exactly. And, but she doesn't recognize a boundary between you and her. So your time is her time. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So exactly. Yeah, exactly. If you decide, which you have, of course, the absolute right to do, how to use your own time, this feels like an affront to her. Yeah. And then you just get trained to have that response that, okay, well, that's probably what's going to happen when I say no to anyone. They're going to feel hurt and I'm responsible for that. And I just think that there's just a lot of really complex emotions going on there when like you're having that kind of feedback from your mom and especially, I mean, unfortunately, poor moms are usually become the primary caregiver. So they kind of become like sort of the center of attachment wounds for kids. Now that you mentioned that, though, where was your father in the house and in this in this chaotic situation? Yeah, um, he did work a lot. So he'd usually like leave early and then come back late at night. And this is something, too, that I also feel like I haven't really started to see kind of unpack until recently that I think there was just sort of a lot of, I don't want to say apathy necessarily but it was being like really really like worn down you know like I think there was a lot of like picking your battles with it and then there was just like slowly kind of getting succumbing to that like this is normal life kind of thing kind of like the classic frog in boiling water yeah I don't really know why there wasn't ever more of an effort to remove us from this or himself or himself yeah exactly seemed like he had some powerlessness there himself exactly Exactly. I guess we would say he chose flight because it's interesting when we talk about those modes, those primal modes of reacting to threat in order to survive. You're not supposed to be in survival mode all the time. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. No. And so there's nothing wrong with fawning, right? If it gets you out of a threatening situation, life-threatening situation for sure, but you shouldn't be in a life-threatening situation. Yeah. Yeah, right. And life-threatening, like that's a good point to make because also yeah it's like when you're a kid and you're having this happen all the time like it kind of does feel Mm life-threatening and so then and so then when you're an adult for me now looking back it's like wow I was really sort of responding inappropriately to it but I'm also responding from the survival mechanism that 
I was employing as a kid and not recognizing that, oh, I'm not actually a kid anymore. I'm not in danger the way that I was when I was six. Yeah. yeah. And, and when you were six and when you were five and when you were four and when you were seven. I think we want to acknowledge that it literally is life threatening. When you're a small child or say an infant, <laughs> if your caretaker is angry at you or is abusing you or is kind of suggesting that they'll withdraw themselves from you. That's life-threatening. <laughs> like, yeah, you survive on your own. You yeah. mentioned something else in your write-up about specific ways you were kind of ignored or dismissed. The phrase is like, go play outside. And things oh, like that. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought that kind of fit into this puzzle pretty nicely too. Um, totally. Yeah. No, I thank you for bringing that up. Yeah. That was definitely also like another massive piece too. It's like either dealing with this person that was like so volatile, lots of walking on eggshells around. And then the other side of it is being constantly sort of dismissed and like, this is such a silly example, but I literally, this was months ago now, but I watched this commercial about a, um, and it's funny, like even it's so funny, like even if I'm talking about it now, it kind of makes me a little choked up. But yeah, it was basically about this mo like mom playing with her kid. And I just felt like such like longing. <laughs> like, um, Yeah, so you were making bids and those bids weren't being met. I'd, I'd also say too, like when you're a kid, you... I don't want to phrase this. Like when you're a kid, you can't really understand th that. I guess I'm saying when you're an adult, if you meet a person who's angry all the time, slash constantly dismissing you okay if like I, this is person sucks i'm not gonna hang out with them um, but um when you're a kid it's your parents are like your heroes you know so or you it, need them to be kind of yeah you need them to be yeah you can't afford to reject them so the only the only person you can re reject in that situation is yourself you almost have to decide that you're the problem you're being told to go outside because there's something wrong with you right there's something unlovable about you rather than it's just a bad parent <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> right or just one that doesn't have capacity you know because mm -hmm. um, yeah i mean i have some compassion for my parents i mean it's not like i blame them for everything they didn't have the capacity to, to to deal with what was going on yeah i think like when you're a kid you don't know any better and and yeah and i kind of agree like i don't necessarily have this like super malicious impression of my parents now yeah that they did this all on purpose you know it's yeah i think sometimes it is just a capacity problem for whatever reason so i imagine um this didn't set up set you up particularly well for healthy relationships <laughs> 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 right <laughs> um, yeah exactly um it's kind of funny so yeah i've heard you guys on a couple episodes talk about uh, attachment styles which is sort of kind of a huge part of what even got me down this like rabbit hole of initially learning what an anxious attachment style was and then that like sort of launched me onto this big path of figuring out all of my codependent behaviors. But it's interesting because yeah, I have these friendships that I was much more sort of avoidantly attached and then I have these like really bad anxious attachments in my romantic relationships. Yeah, so I would say like how I grew up was yeah, by being sort of constantly given this feedback that if I say no, that's a bad I'm like hurting this person that I love by saying no to them, it just kind of reinforced this idea that setting a boundary with someone is is linked with shame. That like I just felt a lot of shame for rejecting this person or hurting this person. And it just just in general, like boundary setting became linked with shame. So then it kind of set me up perfectly. I kind of feel like a beacon for like controlling people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so I had this friendship throughout middle school and high school that was 
very controlling in kind of similar ways of could never, never say no to this person. And I kind of had to always be expected to sort of like leap into action whenever they needed it. And the other piece of it too, that I think is really more important than I maybe initially give it credit. There was also sort of this second piece of a lot of invalidation of me specifically. And so, which I think kind of mirrored things well with my childhood of being always sort of this like really happy kid that was never having problems. It was never allowed to have problems. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I was never allowed to have problems. Exactly. Never allowed to be angry, never allowed to be upset. And so then when I was then in these friendships, I was like super, super the emotional rock. And then if I ever was not that, if I ever was trying to break from that role, I was being told that, you know, I'm overreacting or I'm being too sensitive or why am I making such a big deal of this? Blah, 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 blah. And then that friendship kind of finally ultimately fell apart after college. So this friendship with friend one. Did it fall apart in a way that that you had some agency or, so, or did it just kind of dissolve? Did you escape? <laughs> Were you set mm-hmm. free? Right. <laughs> it, right. Yeah. It No, it kind of, they, friend one ended it. So I, yeah, it even then, uh, yeah, exactly. I don't feel like I personally uh, really took charge of the situation um because i started dating someone actually and then friend one was like i don't know if if we can continue to be friends while you have this relationship giving time to someone else a power play right (laughs) yeah right exactly exactly yeah right it really yeah it was was sort of this ultimatum and then yeah and then sort of the same dynamic started to form with this other friend, friend two, pretty much immediately afterwards that it was, yeah, it's a lot of like, and so it could be like the smallest things, you know, it was, you know, if I was visiting them and they wanted to go to the store and asked if I want to go to the store and I said, oh, no, I'm not really interested. They'd be like, oh, you don't want to go to the store with me? Um, oh, you know, like, oh, we're going to have so much fun, you know, like all this stuff. And it's like, just let me not go to the store. Oh my gosh. <laughs> 20 minutes. <laughs> so, and the same thing, it's anytime I was having problems, it was you know, like, oh, you're making, you're like, oh, you're just overreacting or you have nothing to worry about or all that stuff. And I get on the outside, you know, you have nothing to worry about, stuff like that. Like it's kind of meant to be sort of helpful and supportive. But when it's like the only message, <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty invalidating. And if it happens enough, I mean, I think it, it really is gaslighting because, you know, we can see gaslighting as lying, lying in such a way to, to make you feel like you don't have a grasp on reality. But really, that's what's happening. If someone's consistently telling you that you're not feeling what you're feeling. Yeah. Right. Well, and I think also, yeah, if someone's consistently telling it is li- it is still lying, right? Like if someone is consistently telling you that when you are having an ap- appropriate reaction to a stimulus and someone is telling you that is an inappropriate reaction, exactly. <laughs> that mm-hmm. is, yeah, that is the same thing as trying to convince someone that, oh, no, the lights haven't changed brightness. You're wrong. Yeah, you're not feeling what you say or think you're feeling. This is what you're feeling. Or even the, the store example, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh, I don't want to go to the store. Oh, yes, you do. It's going to be fun. Right, right. <laughs> oh, yes, you do. You actually do. Uh, you, know, I, you know, I know better. I know you yeah. better. This is a message you got, you got a lot, Brian. Oh, from, yeah. From R, particularly. Right. But from both of them, really. From both of them, yeah. They knew me. And they were going to always tell me exactly what I should do or what I should feel. You mentioned something about your behaviors being blamed on lack of confidence. That was totally my the thread all through that relationship with yeah R. it's great yeah brian i would say hearing the way that you describe r and j totally mirrored this friend one friend two relationships as well and even to the extent that 
sort of you mentioned it, I think, in one of the other episodes about being sort of avoidantly attached. And that's what I was kind of realizing was that sort of if you kind of are seeing it from like a totally objective lens with me and friend one, friend two, is that I felt like I couldn't say no to them. So then I would try to be sort of more avoidant to kind of avoid even situations where I would have to say no to them. And then they would feel more anxious. They'd get more clingy. I'd feel less agency, become more avoidant. And like it would just spiral from there. All of this lack of confidence thing. It was so funny. The timing of that was kind of wild because I had had sort of the, like the last conversation I had with friend two, that was sort of where it kind of landed was that all everything that sort of went wrong in our friendship and all the problems we were having and all of the bad feelings that friend two was experiencing was all sort of my responsibility. And the only reason that I didn't want to take responsibility was because I didn't have confidence, you know, that this idea that I couldn't, I couldn't face the accountability, I guess. They wouldn't have wanted that if you did, right? <laughs> I mean, no, right. Which was, yeah, which was exactly what happened because it, what was so crazy was then. So yeah, so basically friend two and I's relationship fell apart over a year and a half ago now, basically because I didn't tell them that I was going out of town essentially is like sort of like the, the root cause of the, the issue. You were taking your body <laughs> and yeah, using, right. using your time and your money to do something that you wanted to do. <laughs> that I wanted to do that I didn't. Without you checking know, with them. Yeah. Without clearing it with, with friend two. Yeah. And so it's super, super escalated because I, when I got back, I kind of was putting my heels down and was like, you know what? No, like they really wanted me to come over to their house and talk about it, you know, quote unquote. And I was like, okay, that's just going to be you reaming me out for however long. So like we can, we can do it in writing, have it on paper. And then I got this huge response about the fact that literally the words, that boundary is unacceptable. Oh, geez, <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I was like, oh, okay, shocker. Yeah. And so then fast forward however long we finally talk again and i you know i give this whole explanation about the fact that hey you know just it's really difficult to do any conflict management with you because you have such a difficult time letting me say no to you and you take it so personally and blah 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 blah, blah. so then the next time that we talk a friend who sort of repeats this back to me that's okay so i just kind of want to parrot back what you said all last summer you felt like you wanted me to fuck off, but felt like you couldn't tell me that. And it was just like, oh my God, that's so totally not what I was saying, you know? And and then also friend, friend two was like, well, like just everything you were explaining, it sounded like you were acting without any agency. Like you didn't have any agency over your choices. And it was just so, I don't know, it was so hard to follow. I literally was just doing something that you didn't want me to do. And apparently that was me not having agency, I guess. I don't know. It was very, very strange. But anyway, yeah, ultimately that that relationship has also fallen apart as well. Congratulations. Yeah. I mean, yeah, really. <laughs> That's terrific. I mean, it sounded like this one was a little more from your agency because you did dig in your heels a little bit on, mm-hmm. on the, the boundary. Totally. Totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and that was kind of the thing, you know, some friend, some mutual friends and my family and stuff were saying that like, oh, well, there's no way that you, you could have played this to make it work. There's nothing you could have done to have made this better. And I was kind of thinking about that and I was like, well, actually, no, there, there was. <laughs> I mean, I could have just done what I used to always do and just be the sort of people pleaser, groveling, apologizer that kind of was needed for this relationship to be sustained. Those were the behaviors that you learned to deal with these kind of people. And that's why exactly why you would get stuck with these kind of people, because they needed someone like you. 
Yeah, right. And something too I want to throw out there is that I do think, especially for me, like growing up as a kid where de-escalating someone who was upset was how I felt safe again. It sort of became this sort of toxic place where I personally felt soothed. I think there was sort of maybe like some kind of cortisol dump or something, or I don't really know enough about that. Yeah, it's an interesting take to think that maybe your body was actually getting some relief from those behaviors. Well, it's 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 a source of power. I mean, it's uh-huh. that's it's an impressive feat. That's true. That's true. You know, you're up against this huge, terrifying, angry being. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. And you as a small child managed to act in such a way that that person becomes soothed. I mean, it's an it's impressive skill. So right. I can see almost getting, you know, quote unquote, addicted to exercising it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And so I do think that there is a certain element of why I attracted isn't the right word, but why I was sort of able to sustain being in these otherwise pretty uncomfortable relationships is I think it's because it like kind of gave me this sort of cortisol dump every once in a while of like, oh, sweet. Like I have, I've made them, I've pacified them. You mm-hmm. know, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm back in control and I feel good about the world, on top of the world now. For me, at least, I would say with trying to break the chain of those behaviors, that was a really important thing to sort of recognize was that, that this immediate instinct can kick in to try to immediately try to like fawn and please someone and feel back in control. But then the, the interesting thing is, is the average, say, healthy person, non-disordered person that you come in contact with and try to employ those behaviors with, they don't want that. <laughs> you don't need that. And it's just going to keep you distant from, from those people. So then, once again, you'll find yourself with one of these people that more or less need you to be, be doing that, regulating their Right, emotion. need you to be regulating them. Yeah, and it's yeah. so funny because, yeah, I mean, I feel like I've since interacted with people who are still very people-pleasing or anything like that, and now I can kind of openly see how it is pretty um, off-putting. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I've been having I, that's that same thing, like seeing all various people in my life and go, oh, that's what it looks like, that's what it feels like. Yeah, the receiving end of dishonest, controlling, people-pleasing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you... You are kind of on the other side of, of a lot of this. How did, how did you get there? And So I would say two things that they've been on my mind quite a bit lately that I've... Well, okay, so first, yeah, I would definitely say for anyone who's struggling with codependency is it's kind of life or death. You need to figure out how to set boundaries. <laughs> you just need to. Um, that is kind of the first thing, like figure out what are your boundaries. And I don't know if you guys have sort of come across this channel at all. It's called literally called the Crappy Childhood Fairy. Um, and she, yeah, she's great. She like kind of she does a lot of situational ethics kind of stuff. Through watching her stuff, I came across sort of this idea that like, okay, so a boundary is something you set for yourself with certain ways you will behave d- depending on how the situation goes. But if you have re- requirements on how other people need to behave, then that's a rule, right? So a requirement on how you should behave is a boundary. A requirement on how someone else should behave is a rule. And then if you have a requirement on how you should behave, but then you don't follow through then that's a preference. And so I kind of like sort of that distinction that it's like, okay, so if you, you know, say, okay, if dinner's not at 7 p.m., this was just <laughs> recently relevant with Thanksgiving. If dinner's not by 7 p.m., then I'm leaving. And if you don't leave, then it's like, okay, well, your preference was that dinner was at 7. Right. And I would say for me, I remember, this is, yeah, I think two years ago now, but I was in therapy for about seven months. And kind of one of the first things that, yeah, my therapist sort of identified was like, it sounds like you don't really set boundaries with people. Um, set boundaries for yourself. And I literally noticed that it was, it was with a dating app 
somebody was inviting me over to their house and I really didn't want to go. And for some reason, I had all these like old patterns, felt like I couldn't say no. And I just distinctly remember even just thinking about the situation. I was feeling this like anxiety bubbling up in my stomach. And my immediate reaction was to just shove the anxiety back down, not even investigate it or find out why I was uncomfortable or anything. And that was for me, like, it's such a clear moment of when things kind of switched. I was like, oh, maybe I should find out why I feel uncomfortable. I shouldn't just automatically assume that any amount of discomfort is wrong. Yeah. So listening to your emotions. This was anxiety about saying no or anxiety about going to a strange person's house? I think both. Yeah, I think it was mostly anxiety about going to a strange person's house. So, right. I mean, yeah, back to your point about boundaries being life and death. Like, that would be an example where going to a strange person's house can be very uh, dangerous. So, therefore, an appropriate anxiety. Yeah, it was appropriate anxiety. Yeah, exactly. And it's so funny because it's like, oh, like, what was I thinking? Like, God forbid I seem picky to this stranger, you know? Right. <laughs> like, better, better, better I put myself in a, you know, physically life threatening situation than have someone feel hurt that, that I, that I, that I yeah. said no. Yeah. <laughs> right. And yeah, and it was exactly that. Like, exactly what happened was I just, I think I said something along the lines of like, oh, you know, I don't want to do that. And then they unmatched and it was totally fine. You know, it, it was. So you rescued yourself. <laughs> exactly. And so, so, so yeah, so I'd say for sure, anytime you f- you're feeling anxiety or discomfort, I maybe stop listening to that. Because I also think too, with people who are very codependent and people pleasing, especially like I was, it's just so second nature to shove your emotions down. I feel like this was very true for me because I was such a outwardly, this very happy, positive person that I had the appearance of being someone that was totally in control and very, very in touch with their emotions. It's so much so that even I felt that way. I thought I was very in touch with my emotions. And it's interesting because on one, I think it was with Carly, has the metaphor of the mask. Just like, I was like, wow, I can really relate to that. It was, for me, it was on so well that I didn't even know I was wearing it. Exactly, right. For me, it's it, I would call it kind of my stories that I had about myself and my life and my situation. Yeah, it's rem- reminding me how you used to kind of describe R and J as irrational and they were just too emotional. They didn't have control of your, their emotions. Right. Where right. you did. I was the rational one. No, really, I was the one that completely severed my emotions. Yeah, like you couldn't deal with your emotions at all. Right. So that you couldn't even come to the surface. Yeah. Totally, totally. I can relate to that so much. And that was a very similar thing, which for me, it was just letting the veneer of positivity finally slip. And then I also think something else that I kind of want to talk about just because for me, it was very helpful to learn more about this just because I think it's maybe a potentially misunderstood term is this concept of intellectualizing your emotions. So the way that I feel like it's commonly described is that, oh, you don't feel your emotions, you just think about them. You have to actually feel your emotions. For instance, this is something that friend two, basically our whole lives says that they do is that, oh, like I don't feel my emotions, I intellectualize them, blah, blah, blah. blah. And for me as someone who felt always sort of trapped by (laughs) my uncomfortable, shameful, bad emotions I was like that sounds like the dream you should always intellectualize like that sounds like the best why would you ever change Um, yeah and I have since found out that intellectualizing is actually more specifically about the ability to sort of convince yourself to have essentially convince yourself to have an inappropriate emotional response 
to a certain situation. So an example could be like, if someone tells me that I, because this happened recently, if someone tells me that I'm selfish, my gut instinct could be to convince myself that, oh, they're having, you know, they're having a bad day, so they don't really mean it. Or that, oh, I should convince them why I'm not selfish. And here's, you know, 10 reasons for why I'm not selfish. Um, and in reality, you know, it's like, these are actually all just ways that I'm kind of trying to convince myself that I don't need to feel the feeling of having someone have a bad opinion of me. And in reality, like, the actually appropriate response is to just acknowledge that, you know, people are capable of saying things that they mean, (laughs) you know, I don't immediately know better than them or what they meant. And then also recognizing that people are allowed to think whatever they want to think. And I can say too, with intellectualizing, it very much lives in a spectrum, right? Because there is like sort of a healthy amount, because sometimes people do say things that they don't mean. So don't just, you know, launch into uncomfortable emotions every time something uncomfortable happens. But also sometimes it's it can be really an easy way to sort of not see reality for what it is. And I think for me, I was actually the one doing a lot of intellectualizing, right? Because I was constantly sort of giving people the benefit of the doubt, especially friend one and friend two. I was sort of constantly kind of like rewriting things as soon as they were happening to sort of convince myself that, oh, I'm not actually being mistreated here. (laughs) This is fine. (laughs) This is totally normal and healthy. And yeah, and I don't know, the kind of the example I give for it that I think happens a lot is about envy, this idea that okay, you don't want to feel envy of someone because that makes you feel inferior and wounds the ego. So instead, it's easier to just contempt something. And so like self-righteousness is an easier emotion than envy is or shame. So intellectualizing is kind of the way of, I guess, sort of like transitioning emotions into other places that are maybe more palatable. I was definitely doing that constantly myself. I think I called it rationalizing for just the storytelling again. It's a similar concept where my emotions, they were always there and they were always pretty clear, but I didn't want to feel them. and I was confused by them and I didn't want to take the action that they were telling me to take. Totally. Oh, yeah. okay. Well, no, that's not really what I'm feeling. What I'm, I try to make them as confusing to myself. Really, <laughs> I, I lump them all together, and it's like, well, it's just anxiety I'm feeling. Well, why am I feeling anxiety? Well, because you know I'm in the wrong here somehow. I need to correct something myself. Like it's not that the other person, just, yeah, abused me, like you said. It's that I brought it on or something. I think yeah. what you just said too is exactly it. Is I don't want to take the action that it's telling me to take. So, yeah, absolutely. I super super agree with that. I mean, the two systems were formed to work together. We have the emotions that are supposed to give us this kind of immediate visceral response to situations. And then later on, we have the intellect to kind of process that response. Mm-hmm. We can use it to determine like, oh, you know, is this an appropriate response? Sometimes it's not, right? Yeah, right. Or is it not an appropriate response? And like, how do I, how do I want to take in this information? Yeah, yeah, totally. It seems like with, with the codependence, like the emotions were so painful and scary that mm-hmm. you just lean right into <laughs> intellectualizing, right? Yeah. The situation. What kind of story can I, I can't, I can't take, I can't receive this information, mm-hmm. anxiety or fear or, or shame or, shame or I'm going to use my big brain. And, the, and what unfortunately seems to happen is what you were just describing is that more often than not, you're using your intellect in order to justify and rationalize other people's behavior. Yeah, right. <laughs> totally. Like they, they don't even have to do the work themselves mm-hmm. to come up with the excuse for why they're behaving badly or treating you badly or 
oh saying God, things yeah. about you. Like you, you're going to spend your considerable amount of it. Right. Like I'm better at manipulating myself than either friend one or friend two ever were. You know? yeah, right. Like right. they don't even need to do the work of excusing right. their behaviors. Like I got it. I'm going to come up with an excuse for you. I mean, that is what I found myself doing with R&J was I was giving them the material. Right. Really. Yeah. You know, I mean, I gave them the narratives myself. Totally. And I think Stephanie, that's such a important point is that it's not like one system is better than the other but they are supposed to work together and if you lean too hard into one then you will you can cause some pretty pretty significant damage kind of see maybe the narcissist or or and we don't know kind of sounds like friend one friend two who had some narcissistic traits yeah for sure um the narcissist basically any emotion that they have is right they they don't need to Mm -hmm. think about it they don't need to right (laughs) oh my god yeah right you know, if they're angry, they have complete right to be angry. If, if they feel something about you, then that feeling is... So I guess in a way, it's like you kind of split the system into two different people um, that then become the, the balancing system. The, yeah, the balancing end. When, yeah, you should be just doing it all internally. So you mentioned um, that one of the places and the spaces that you accessed in order to process all of this was Al-Anon. Did some of these ideas about the importance of boundaries and intellectually and your feeling come from there? Or what 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 did you get from that from that community? Yeah. Yeah. Some of the stuff that's been echoed quite a bit with well and also to yeah back up to people who maybe aren't familiar. Al-Anon is a support group started for families and family members who have been impacted by alcoholism in the family. So obviously everyone's very familiar with AA. Al-Anon is kind of the the co-parent. <laughs> the co-dependent. Yeah, yeah right. the co-dependent. Yeah, it really, like it literally was, yeah, set up for the co-dependence of the alcoholics. Kind of the joke for Al-Anon is, how do you know you're in an Al-Anon meeting, uh, someone spills their coffee and everyone else gets up to clean it up? It does operate in a pretty similar structure. I think the 12 steps are just slightly worded differently. It's the same thing, like every, you know, you're in a, in a room for an hour and everyone kind of gives the sort of a three to five minute share. But one of the things that I really appreciated about going to Al-Anon meetings, and especially because that was while sort of the breakup with friend two was happening, I was going to meetings pretty regularly just to kind of sort of feel grounded because it's so, when you're sort of really freshly getting out of kind of an abusive relationship, it's just so easy to get sucked back in and con- reconvince yourself, right? Re-intellectualize that like, oh, I'm the problem. I'm the one that did everything wrong. So yeah, so Al-Anon, it's Again, kind of echoing what other people sharing have said is that it's just really nice to be in sort of a community of people dealing with the same kind of problems. Somebody who's causing a lot of havoc in their life that they don't have any control over and you love them very much, but at the end of the day, you can't really make you can't make their decisions for them. And for Alana, it's kind of split up into, there's also multiple types of groups. So for me, what I kind of connect with more is, it's basically, it's, I think it's called the Alana Young People's Meeting, but it's essentially uh, for people who are uh, the adult children of alcoholic parents. And one of the principles for me that I really appreciated about Al-Anon was the idea of detachment that really kind of hammers in this focus that the, the alcoholic person is responsible for their own actions and choices in that. So especially with dealing with alcoholics, there can be a lot of issues of, you know, it's like, okay, they don't get up to go to work in the morning. And so if you're the codependent, you might call work for them and call out sick for them. Or if the alcoholic has, you know, a massive tantrum, you might 
try and send the text message to all the friends being like, oh, they didn't really mean what they said and they're so sorry, you know? So it's, yeah, it's like all of these kind of cleanup behaviors that I think anyone who's ever been in a codependent relationship can totally relate to. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's in, in, insanity inducing because it really does feel like it's like such this repeated pattern of like, you're doing so much for this person and you feel so, um, and then just this like endless cycle that gets worse and worse and worse. And so, yeah, so I, for me, it was really, really helpful. And I distinctly remember this one moment when I went to a meeting and I was feeling with this conflict that was happening with friend two, I was really pushing for space. It was really pushing for cool down time, right? This was also part of what friend two found so unacceptable was that there's no time. Everything had to be resolved immediately. And I went to an LNL meeting and this person like gave a share about, so obviously a big part of both LNL and AA is kind of this religious component. And they were saying that I was like, well, I don't really believe in God, but sometimes I kind of just try to like give faith to concepts. She was like, so my concept was time. Like I just give faith to time. And it was just so perfectly coincidental with exactly what I was experiencing that it just like had this like, w- like wave effect of like, okay, I, I think I am in fact doing the right thing. Time is a good thing. Yeah. So I don't know. I, it really, I can say it, it really can be very, ooh, very helpful. And the other thing too, I do think that there's a huge part of the process of moving away from codependency and sort of its related behaviors, like people pleasing and stuff like that, that especially if you're sort of in my situation where you're kind of like doing it by yourself, it's a very identity changing process. And so it can be like a really lonely process too. And I think especially with friend too, it was really complicated because they're very interconnected with a lot of mutual friends and my family knows them really well. And so there's just, you're kind of getting also tons and I was getting tons and tons of feedback and opinions about Mm. how kind of to be sort of operating. So there was just tons and tons of self-doubt. So uh, for me, Al-Anon was just kind of this really beautiful, safe place that I could go to. And like, it just felt like there was uh, like someone on the other side. It just felt like there was at least like one other person. Yeah. So, so it's so important. And I'm so glad that you brought this up and you shared it with us because it's true. We haven't discussed Al-Anon at all. Mm-hmm. Um, we just discussed A-Day and CODA and and had some challenges with that. But it does seem even more than CODA that Al-Anon is, is a space where people with codependency, regardless of whether it formed in response to an alcoholic relationship, could really find their people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and I would say too, like, sort of the, the standard for Al-Anon is they kind of say is like, go to at least six meetings, six different meetings, because every group, they're called family groups, I think that's the same as AA, but they're all kind of, they sort of will ultimately end up operating under their own identity. So some AA, Al-Anon groups might be very strict with the like, you must know an alcoholic. <laughs> but some, the one that I was going to a lot uh, before I moved was very open. For instance, like, there was someone there that, because they're, it's called a qualifier. The qualifier is usually the addict. Their qualifier was with, I think it was with marijuana. So, yeah, so it just kind of, it can depend on the group that you connect with and stuff. But don't just go to one and be like, oh, this is maybe it's not for me. I would recommend go to six different groups and then you might find one that you really connect with. Yeah, that's that's good to know that some privilege more alcoholism as the personality disorder that's the 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 trigger but it's all disorder personality yes exactly (laughs) i mean for me what i I didn't have that experience it never came from someone that was it was just abusive people narcissistic people that took advantage of my codependent behaviors that were already there so and and i think there's probably a lot of people with that experience too but it sounds like that structure could could benefit people just as equally. I, th- I think so, yeah. I want to go back to something you said about identity because I think that was really it was really kind of heart-wrenching and I think it's 
Also, what a lot of people who have struggled with codependency have to face is that they weren't really given the opportunity as children to find out who they were mm -hmm. as people, yeah. what they liked and what they were good at and, and what, what they were challenged by and what they were interested in. I mean, they just had to be reactive to other people's <laughs> wants and needs and desires. And so to come when you're then as an adult and to find that, to have someone ask you, like, well, what, what do you want from a relationship or what do you dream about and not have an answer? I mean, I, I imagine that must feel, yeah, that must feel scary and, and somewhat lonely. It, yeah, it really can be. You had those experiences too, Brian, where you were kind of, yeah. you had these stories about yourself that you were, you were nice, you were X, right. you were this, right? right. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. And each time I peeled away or rewrote one of those stories, I was like, what am I left with actually? Like what? Who am I? Who have I been this whole time? Mm -hmm. And that was part of my forensic was to go back and try to think about times where I made certain decisions and is like, what did I actually want to do in that instance? And and so I was able to kind of recreate my identity from from doing that. But we're still discovering, right? Yeah, we're still discovering stories that you told you about yourself, like that, oh, that you wanted a career in music, and you're like, oh, actually, yeah. no, I didn't. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was what somebody else wanted, you know, and and I had this mild resistance the entire time that I didn't know what it was. And I judged myself for it and thought, well, it's just because I'm I'm depressed or I have a problem with motivation or and then for years after that experience, it was just like, oh, man, I just can't seem to get myself to pick up a guitar. What's wrong with me? You know, <laughs> and actually, I didn't really like it that much. <laughs> <laughs> that was the issue. <laughs> Yeah, I was doing it because, yeah, it made other people happy. Yeah, right. Yeah. How are you finding that kind of identity work? Oh, man, that's such a heavy question. Yeah, that's, yeah, I would say it is definitely a, a, an easy to underestimate part of the process for sure. I do remember listening to a podcast. I wish I could remember who it was. But yeah, they were talking about people pleasing and kind of made the comment about, do you find yourself like losing steam on a project once you start losing outward praise? That sort of helped me figure out things to kind of focus on and look at. It was like, okay, like what are the things that I kind of am only doing because people tell me what a good job I'm doing? <laughs> um, and then what are the things yeah. that I managed to keep doing even if no one's telling me? For instance, one of them was I like I really, really love running and I'm like a terrible runner. I didn't know that was possible. <laughs> <I just laughs> <thought> you <laughs> yeah, you would hope that eventually you would get better, but I seem to defy the odds. <laughs> but I mean, I have gotten better. I'm being a little hard on myself, but that was maybe the biggest one that felt like it got kind of unlocked was that when I realized that how much external praise kind of could impact my motivation. And that made me realize like, oh, wait, I don't need external praise to run i can just run because i like it like i don't need anyone else to validate if i am or i'm not a good runner you know like you don't need to run a marathon to be a runner really great point I, I think yeah when it came to the music it was, it was a similar thing for me it was just like this this was meant to be for other people rather than just entertaining myself or just enjoying myself exactly yeah like the life of the party is you know the person who can play guitar really well right mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and yeah so so that for me really unlocked running and it actually I mean it's it is kind of funny because it did I think even just that alone gave me the ability to start running a lot more and further and more consistently and so that made me a better runner that could be a clue for people who may find themselves struggling with something similar I think that's great really what you're describing is kind of what we we're talking about earlier too just kind of like checking in with yourself with yeah getting better at reading your emotions yeah. you know mm -hmm. so what am I feeling here am I feeling the need for praise or am I feeling actual enjoyment in yeah. the activity it's not just the negative emotions that get pushed down unfortunately it's often the positive ones as well so you, 
you don't get used to like, am I enjoying this? Like what does enjoyment feel like for Mm -hmm. me? So getting used to reading the positive emotions as well. Mm -hmm. Totally. Totally. Yeah. And I would also say too, that for me, what was a super big component of it was just doing a lot of journaling and a lot of meditation, which I know sounds like so cheesy, but it really, it really was a very helpful part of the process because yeah, it's exactly that. It's like just sort of, well, and actually, I mean, Ryan, I feel like you've talked about that too on this podcast even that, yeah, how much journaling you did. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, once I started that, that became my daily thing. I mean, I had, I had a time that I set aside every single day, called it my reflection hour and I would spend an hour writing sometimes more if I was motivated to keep going, but that's where I made so many of my discoveries that that combined with talking with Stephanie. Yeah. I would say it was journaling was super, super helpful. And then also meditation could be kind of helpful because I, I, I can be a pretty visual person at times. So sometimes it was a good way to kind of explore things that were I didn't quite know how to put it into words. Yeah, so I, I do remember like time sitting down and I kind of was like imagining like different uncomfortable emotions as layers in a house. And it was so interesting how like they started to change. Like, I don't know, I remember guilt being like the top floor. And then I was moving through different or maybe it was embarrassing. I don't, yeah, I can't vividly remember what they all were. But the one that I remember the most was shame felt like going down one of those like basement doors that like you have to like go down a ladder. And it was into this massively expas- expansive cavern that was lit up by like my lantern. Wow. wow. Yeah. And it was so interesting. And it was really cool to have kind of this like very visceral experience of what my emotion look like to me the whole experience of it yeah right? that does sound super helpful because i mean that's what we're trying to do is identify make it easier for ourselves to more quickly identify what we're feeling as we're feeling it and whatever tool we can come up with to do that because a lot of them are subtle the, the differences you know because in the past i would just like anxiety that's like pretty much all i had fear and anxiety you know shame yeah. i didn't even have shame actually I, that was everything was just anxiety but yeah being able to like separate them out and distinguish what they are yeah, this is the whole experience of fear, you know, mm-hmm. the visual and, and the yeah, probably sense like it's damp, you know. And mm. <laughs> yeah, totally. Because yeah, because I remember guilt being in like an oddly lively room almost because there were like people there and like for some reason that's true yeah yeah and yeah and i think it's renee brown that talks about shame is the feeling that as soon as you leave a room everybody in it is talking badly about you Uh, (laughs) and so shame like it makes sense like shame is this immensely isolating feeling it's ultimate beyond rejection and abandonment and everything else it's there's something wrong with you yeah yeah you're not fit to be part of society (laughs) yeah you're all alone totally shame in and of itself is like every emotion like it is a useful emotion it has a purpose it's there Mm. for a reason but yeah when you're when you're a kid and you grow up in a very dysfunctional environment, so many things become sort of incorrectly linked with shame that now shame serves no purpose, just as like it exists to make life hard, you know, so you have to yeah. avoid it at all costs. Yeah, right. And, to, and then as a result, it's misleading you, it's misguiding you because it's attached to everything. Oh, I need to get away from that. So I, I'm inadvertently getting away from everything. Yeah, I just do kind of want to echo that it is not easy work. So yeah, so anyone who feels like maybe they're going through it should definitely be proud of themselves. And definitely, yeah, I agree. Yeah. It's really, really difficult work. And, but as you kind of said earlier, it's, it's really kind of a matter of life and death. Totally. Yeah, totally. And one of the things I think that just to you guys specifically, and what really attracted me to this podcast and why I've found myself recommending it quite a bit is 
Brian, you specifically, I think you've done something that is is part of what makes this extremely difficult is admitting that we didn't really always behave very well. <laughs> um, and I think just the level of accountability that you've always had through it, it was really nice. I think there can be a tendency to be very forgiving for codependence and sort of overly forgiving because it's like, oh, you're just so kind and you've taken advantage of and all this stuff. And so it's it really can be very quite uncomfortable to maybe have to look back and recognize like, oh, okay, actually I was being maybe a little dishonest and I'm not actually as kind and selfless as I maybe like to think I am. So I yeah, I, you guys definitely deserve really a lot of a lot of props oh, thank you. for that. Yeah, that that might be one of the most difficult parts is to to recognize your own culpability in, mm -hmm. in the situation, which is not to blame or shame yourself right. either. <laughs> right. Part of that work, I think, is because everything gives us shame. Everything gave me shame anyway. So trying to admit guilt or things like that, mm -hmm. you know, I kind of innately assumed I was at fault, but I didn't want to think about that directly. And then actually turning it into the real stories. Yeah, it did give me shame. And, and retroactive shame is just as hard as current shame. Absolutely. So it's a lot of work sitting with that and coming out on the other side and turning the shame into just realization. And, and kind of accepting maybe that, yeah, it's like sometimes it's okay to disappoint other people and be disappointing. And I guess ultimately it's sometimes okay actually to just feel shame about things. And mm -hmm. shame in and of itself isn't this deadly thing that's going to kill you. It's you can just recognize, oh, I'm feeling shame and move on with your life. Yeah, true. Right. Because I, I found myself going back to shame for the same incidents. And I go, well, I thought I turned this into something else. Well, no, it's fine. It's fine to feel shame again for the same thing, because it may have been a shameful thing that I did. But it's not the full picture of you anymore. Right. Exactly. Right. It doesn't define you. Yeah. It doesn't define you. Mm -hmm. oh, gosh, you know, I we wish you all the best in, yeah. in, in your continued journey. And I mean, I really feel that there's good things coming for you, Taylor. It just, yeah, thank you so much. Yeah. It yeah, I feel I feel I'm I'm feeling positive about things moving forward. And yeah, definitely good luck as you guys continue to work and build on this podcast. I definitely look forward to hearing more stories and more episodes so yeah keep up the good work <laughs> thank you thank you and we hope uh people join us next time for another guest and again if you're interested in joining us for a conversation um, please reach out at codependentmind at gmail.com mm -hmm.